0: If you can, grab your Bibles. Um, you can open up to Genesis 1. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are at the front here, and they're going to walk towards the back. If you don't have a Bible, just put your hand up in the air. We want to make sure a Bible gets to you. And, um, and if this is your first time, just a special welcome to you. We're grateful you're here. We want to make sure you, you leave here with a copy of God's Word. And, uh, and we trust that you'll take it home and read it and be encouraged and blessed by it. Um, this is our second week in the book of Genesis Last week, we began with the first couple of verses, and this week, we're going to march through a good chunk of the first chapter, but I want to begin by um, telling you a bit of a story. There's a story about a mom who, uh, who brought her four-year-old son to the park one day, and her son ran up to her after playing with some friends, and, uh, and came to her and asked this question, Mommy, where did I come from? And the mom... Um, not ever thinking that at four years old she was going to have to explain the birds and the bees, does her best in this moment to preserve his innocence, but to give him some kind of an explanation. She fumbles her way um, through it and does the best job she can, kind of sheepishly, and her son stares at her afterwards and just shrugs his shoulders and says, well, Timmy says he comes from Indiana. (laughs) Uh, There are times... When we come to the bible and we try to ask questions that it is not intending to answer we bring our modern way of thinking and impose it on the text uh, believing that that's what those ancient recipients of the text would have been asking or thinking about when in many cases that's not true Our goal in reading the Scriptures, one of the goals, is not to impose our way of thinking in our modern Western world onto the text. It's to try to immerse ourselves back into the the context in which it was written. And when we do that, we can begin to think the way they thought and to ask the kind of questions they were asking. And to see how the Scriptures begins to answer those questions. The original audience of Genesis was likely the Israelites who were wandering through the wilderness, and they were receiving this letter along with the rest of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They were not running to Genesis 1 and trying to sift it through some kind of modern scientific grid, trying to determine the age of the earth or how exactly God made the universe, And as we approach Genesis 1, it's important to understand that Genesis 1 is less about the how God created the universe and more about the what, the who, and the why. They were more concerned with the functional aspect of the universe and the purpose that was driving it. And so God was meeting them where they were at, and He was helping them make sense of their world, and He was offering them a foundation upon which to stand in a sea of competing worldviews. And as we looked at last week, unlike the the pagan gods of the day and the pagan um, creation myths, the God of Israel is different Unlike the pagan gods of Babylon, Egypt, Canaan, or Rome, the God of Israel made everything just right, and he set it up to function properly within his purposes. And God demonstrates his power and sovereignty by bringing the cosmos into conformity with his good purposes. And this gave them, again, those original readers, a firm foundation. It gave them comfort and hope in the midst of often dark, lifeless, and chaotic times. None of this, the world, the universe, was random and left up to chance. Their circumstances were not random or left up to chance. Their God is the God who is over all, and this is the foundation of all life and for all living. God has a purpose, even in the midst of the chaos of our world. And I think we all feel the chaos of our world. We, we can look around over the last few years and certainly we see the devastating effects of a lot of things. We see economic upheaval in many places. We see a rising inflation and interest rates. We have increased costs of living. Some people around the world are experiencing war at this very moment and famine at this very moment. We see tyranny and corruption everywhere we look. But beyond that, we experience the chaos in our own lives some of us feel chaos in our homes things seem so disordered and maybe we feel it most in our own hearts hearts that are so chaotic and disordered by sin but you see what this chapter reminds us of is that God is over all of that there are times when everything around us seems dead or at least like a barren wasteland feels lifeless We feel like we're wandering in the wilderness, dry, weary. It's hard simply to just put one foot in front of the other. And the moment we feel like we see an oasis, we realize it's just a mirage. A drop of water for our thirsty soul seems so elusive. But it's helpful, again, to know that in the moments of deepest despair, of weariness, of wandering in the wilderness, there is a God who is over it all, There's a God who meets us in these Lifeless moments. There's a God who meets us in the midst of darkness. There's a God who meets us in the midst of chaos. He is the God of the universe. He is over all. He is over the nations of the world. He is over the gods of this world. He is over the affairs of this world. Everything finds its origins in him. He ordains it all. He orders it all. And he oversees it all. And this, loved ones, listen, this is intended by God to bring incredible comfort peace rest hope and joy to our souls we don't need to get sucked into the craziness that is all around us we don't need to get sucked into the mess in our own souls we need to be ripped out of that and we need to be brought into into the realm of God's sovereign control over all things he is the God who reorders our disorder he is the God who brings life when it is lifeless he is the God who brings light when there is darkness. Moses writes Genesis. And I want to back up to verse 1 and let's read together to verse 25. He says In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. As we look at this text, I want you to see simply that God is over all creation, because God is over all creation, He's over every aspect of your life and mine. First, notice that we see that God is overall because He brings order to the chaos. We saw this in the first couple of verses, that there is a, a sort of chaos that, that the, the creation account begins with. But contrary to the competing creation myths of Egypt and Babylon and Canaan, there isn't any pre-existing material from which God creates creation. the message is clear. Everything that exists, animate and inanimate, comes from God and depends upon God. God is the creator of all things. He creates ex nihilo out of nothing. I love how Isaiah 45, 18 puts It should be on the screen there. There it is. It says this, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and He did not create it empty. He formed it to be habited. I am the Lord and there is no other. So what we see is that the first stage of creation moves from nothing to a formless and void watery mass. That's the the second verse of Genesis. Genesis. Now, most of the ancient Near Eastern accounts of creation agree that a watery mass precedes the ordered creation. But in their versions, matter, again, is something that's eternal and something that's even evil. It exists in a kind of eternal conflict with the Creator God, and there's a a plethora of gods, a multitude of gods who go to battle and the earth and humanity is birthed out out of some kind of cosmic violence or some kind of cosmic sexual deviance. They're bizarre accounts of creation. But in God's account, only He is eternal. Matter is neutral, and whereas Marduk, the Babylonian creator god, or Baal, Baal, uh, bring order into chaos by conflict against the waters, here God shows His power and authority and sovereignty over them by taking them and shaping them and making them into a functional world. The Spirit has been hovering over, not going to battle against the waters, The triune God is over all and he is about to bring order to the chaos. He's about to take, remember we saw this last week, what is currently in its early stages an uninhabitable mass. He's going to make it habitable for life. Throughout the creation account, God is putting his power and authority on display. So I, I want to kind of put this before us because we can look at this account and we can look at all the particulars and it gets a little bit technical if we, we want it to be. And we can actually miss the kind of a theocentric worshipful nature of this passage that we're intended to see and embrace. So I read this in John Calvin's commentary on the book of Genesis this week, and I found it so helpful. I kind of mashed together a few quotes, but listen to what John Calvin says. He says this, Moses's intention is to render God, as it were, visible to us in his works. He clothes himself, so to speak, with the image of the world. The world is a mirror in which we ought to behold God. So in other words, as we go through this, just remember that all of this account is intended to display the glory of God, to put his power on full display for us to see. The account here, in other words, is given for our sake to teach us that God has made nothing without a certain reason and design. The design and structure of this passage is remarkable. We, we dipped our toes into those waters a little bit last week, but we noted that the numbers 3, 7, and 10 are used frequently in this passage. A 7 in particular is the number of perfection. Any Jew who read this would have understood 7 as being God's number, the number of perfection. And so what you find in this passage is the number 7 is used in a variety of different ways, all the days, by the way, leading up to and culminating in the seventh day there are seven Hebrew words in the first verse there are 14 seven times two in the second verse in chapter 2 1 through 3 there's 35 words seven times uh five is that right did I do my math right and then, and then throughout this passage, the name God is used 35 times. There, there are numerous ways in which Moses has just wonderfully structured this passage to show, just through the, the simple nature, the literary structure, the beauty, the majesty, the wonder, and the order of our God who takes what is not ordered and reforms it and structures it into beauty and perfection. It's so powerful. And even the way the days are structured is actually very intentional by the Spirit of God and the pen of Moses. In fact, I want to just put this chart up uh, on the screen so you can see what this looks like. So here's how you can think of the creation days. The first three days is God forming the earth. The second three days, God is filling the earth, and I don't know if you've ever seen this parallel before, but what you see is that the days actually correspond with each other. So you see on the chart there, on the first day, uh, we have light and dark created, the boundaries, the structures are put in place, the framework is put in place, and then notice on day four, the corresponding day, the lights of the day and night, the stars, they're all placed. So it's if, listen, it's if God is building a house in the first three days, the structures in place, and then he is furnishing the house, or if I can use another analogy that we used last week, and this is exactly what I believe the creation account is pointing us toward, it's as if God is building a temple of the universe, and He's framing it out, the exact specifications, it's perfect, and then He's going to fill His temple, just like the tabernacle was built with exact specifications, and it was furnished with exact specifications, the whole universe it's like a cosmic temple where God will dwell with humanity. So we have the arrangement of creative acts into these matching groups. And the repetition, by the way, is so important as we, we work through this passage. There's some a frequent repetition, phrases, words. You may have noticed this as we, we read through. Just a few things to note. Um, how does creation occur? God speaks. God said, and then an action follows. Just Things just happen, boom, just the way God says. God calls into being things that did not exist. The activity follows, and then God names. And then following that, God looks at it, and God determines it. He declares it to be good. And so what we see is that God is framing out uh, his house, so to speak, his temple. And the three acts of naming that take place here are really significant. They relate to separation. He separates the day and night, the skies, the land from the seas... And in the ancient world, again, we saw this, one of the dominant themes here is kingdom. In the ancient world, anybody who who named something, it was if they were taking dominion over it, they were exercising authority over it. So God here is displaying his kingship over creation. He authenticates their existence and he demonstrates his superiority and authority over it. The first few days are marked by separating and framing out God's world. We notice uh, that God first separates the light and the darkness. We'll get into that a little bit later. He calls the light day and the darkness He calls night. And then, We move on to the second day, and then God separates waters, and and it's taken a number of different ways, but the idea is this, that God creates, you know, the waters below, so to speak, that, that help make the world habitable for humanity, and he separates it and puts water above. Some people simply take this as being the clouds, that God allows water to fall from heaven, and he brings water from earth below, and this is going to be the ecosystem which allows life to then thrive in God's good creation. God continues his work of framing out his creation, and he allows dry land to appear, and he creates the earth or land, separating it from the waters. God is is masterfully building a home for humanity and for himself. That's the first three days. Now, who's ready for some controversy? Uh, this passage, arguably, is more controversial. People have more opinions on this passage than they do my mustache. <laughs> Which I'm very thankful for, by the way. And, and the real controversy, in many ways, surrounds one simple word. You guys know what the word is? Days. Well, how do we understand these days? And and, and there have been battles that have been fought for thousands of years in the life of the church. And by the way, the controversy stems way back into Jewish history. Um, Jewish rabbis were, were wrestling through this question long before the church was even in existence, the New Testament church. The word for days in Hebrew is the word yom. And part of the issue is that that word can actually be taken in a variety of different ways. It's used in a variety of different ways throughout the scripture, at least five different ways this word is is used in scripture. So it doesn't always just mean a literal day, oftentimes it means a long period of time or a stage at the beginning of time and things like that. It's a great book, by the way, if if this is intriguing to you. It's called uh, Controversy of the Ages. I want to jot that title down it is well worth a read it traces the history of this discussion it addresses various perspectives uh, with grace and charity it gets a little technical and a little bit meaty at times so if you can wade through that or if, uh, then go for it but it's really helpful but but the real question here that many have is how do we understand these days are they literal 24-hour days i mean it says days i mean there's morning and there's evening or are they long periods of time? Or are there gaps between these days? I mean, there's, there's so many perspectives. It would take me at least, I mean, one, one uh, James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary, he, he spent, I think, six or seven weeks each week going through a perspective theory on this. I'm not going to do that. Because I, here's, here's why. Because I don't think that's the point of the text. It's fine to do that, and it's intriguing, but I just, I think we're maybe missing the point. It's interesting, um, early Jewish Christian and Christian interpreters, they were actually troubled that it took God seven days to create the world. Do you realize that? Like they looked at like six days. Why would it take God six days to create the world? He, can't, he just speak it into existence. In fact, that's exactly what Augustine believed and many other interpreters throughout the Christian history, that this is simply a literary way that God is, is allowing us to understand something of, of the process of creation, but in reality, God maybe just spoke it all into existence. Some believe that they are literal days, and, and that's what we call a young earth creationism. There are people, maybe, maybe a good portion of you in this room would fall into this camp where you believe the earth is somewhere between six and ten thousand years old. Um, there are some who believe that these are not literal days or that there are gaps between these days and All kinds of other theories, like I said, and and they would be falling mainly into a category or a camp called old earth creationists. Um, Old earth creationism is not necessarily synonymous with theistic evolution, okay? So some people confuse this, and they're all up in arms. They're like, if we go to an old earth, that means we believe we're, we're giving validation to evolution. No, that's not true. There are many, many Christians who are in this camp. In fact, I would argue that it's actually the majority position in the evangelical church, and it actually has been throughout the centuries. Well, why would this be anything other than literal? Well, let me give you an argument for that perspective. Again, I'm just going to keep this really short, um, and, and I not want to take up a lot of time on this. All six days are, are similarly kind of expressed through this Phrase, there is evening and there is morning. By the way, um, that's an interesting way of phrasing it, isn't it? Uh, We don't speak evening first and morning. Um, There's potentially some theological reasons for that, but I'm not going to go there right now either. It seems, though, as some would argue, that Moses maybe provides some signals that we're not to take this description literally. As if God actually created creation in six 24-hour days. And again, just humor me here. I'm not suggesting what you have to believe right now. Um, One commentator says this. Simply put, while the first three days have evening and morning, I don't know if you caught this, uh, there are no stars, moon, or sun until the fourth day. So in other words, he says, there can be no literal evening and morning without these celestial bodies. Granted, God can manipulate some kind of light source to alternate light and darkness in a 24-hour period, but these would still not be literal days. I mean, we measure days by the earth's rotation around the sun. And so they're just simply suggesting, well, it's impossible to do that when there is no sun. So he goes on to say, thus describing creation as a week is a literary device to make a theological point. Uh, Again, this is just one perspective. Now, again, I'm not going to get into the nitty gritties. Let me give you one other thought on this, okay? And this is something that I think is really important to at least consider. And here it is. Um, When we get to the seventh day, and we didn't even read about it yet, one of the things you're going to see is that there's something missing there that's present in every other day. There is evening and there is morning every day but the seventh day. Now, what's interesting is, and I hope you want to get it. I hope you want to interpret the Bible the way that the authors of Scripture interpret the Bible. What you see is that that lack of evening in the seventh day is picked up on, it's noticed by biblical authors. So, for example, Psalm 95, um, the psalmist begins to talk about the Sabbath and recognizes that in creation that the Sabbath rest is, till, is still today he says. And then Hebrews, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4, picks up on this idea that the Sabbath rest of God, uh, the seventh day, so to speak, is continuing up until today. Today can be the day you enter into the seventh day, in other words, the author of Hebrews says. So here's, here's the theological problem that you need to kind of wrestle with. If one of the days is referred to as having no end and being a long or eternal day, so to speak, What's to say that we shouldn't interpret the other days that way. Now, I'm not going to, you're like, well, Ian, just tell me what you believe. Okay, here goes. No. Here's what I want to say about this. I think, sadly, this issue has been elevated to a place of primary importance in many people's minds and in many churches. Um, Too many people have made this the test of orthodoxy. You know, and this, I'll just say this, this happens mainly if you're in the young earth creation camp. The charge is that if you don't believe this, if you don't take this literally, then you don't believe the Bible, okay? That's often what ends up being said. But I want you to know that throughout the history of the church, great theologians have disagreed on this issue. Up until recent modern times, it was understood that there was mystery here, okay? And there was freedom to disagree and still be part of the Orthodox Christian church, to not be deemed a heretic or to be deemed that you don't don't care about the Bible, you don't think the Bible is authoritative or or sufficient. In fact, the creeds and confessions refused, this is interesting, throughout history, they refused to take a stand on a literal or figurative days because they didn't believe it was important. Nor did they believe it was the point of the passage. The earliest creed that we know of is the Apostles' Creed, right? You want to know what they say about about creation? Here's what they say. I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, period. That was the standard test for orthodoxy. And so I just simply want to say there's freedom to disagree on this issue. To suggest that if you don't believe in, in young earth creation, that you don't believe in the Bible, is, is an inc- you need to hear this. Some of you really need to hear this. It's an incredibly arrogant, uncharitable, and historically unfaithful statement. You're like, well, it's a slippery slope. I mean, if you don't take the Bible literally there, then where, where do you start? Listen, the, the objective of the Bible and the standard test of orthodoxy is not how literally do you take the Bible. Here, here this is really important. It's do I understand and interpret the Bible the way the original authors intended me to? That's the standard test of orthodoxy. So, where do we go from here? Very simply, I just wanna say this, that if you're old earth creation or you're young earth creation, uh, your views are welcome here. I don't think the scriptures are compatible with evolution, so um, if you're an evolutionist, I'm sorry, you're still welcome to come. (laughs) We love you, no, but, but I think you have more problems when it comes to try to fit evolution into here, but that is a very different thing than believing the earth is old, and I just simply want to say we need to cultivate an attitude of humility before the sheer mystery of creation. I think, I think the words of Job are really applicable here. Job 38, we'll put it up. Here's, here's what God says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? John Calvin says this. He says, When God makes an end of teaching, we should make an end of trying to be wise. Now, Here's what I want to say to you. If, if you're passionate about this stuff, that's fantastic. You, listen, there's some interesting stuff. You can dig into this stuff, and you can wrestle through some of these issues. But I want to make it very clear that creation, and, and especially literal day creations, 24 hours, that's not a primary issue. That's not even a secondary issue. That's a tertiary issue. It really doesn't matter that much at the end of the day. So what then is the point of the text? This is the question you need to ask. Okay, we're moving on here, okay? The question... Questions like these, while interesting and sometimes necessary, they actually can obscure the equally valid and even more valuable point that creation, however long it took, was a deliberate and orderly unfolding of God's purposes. That's the point of this passage. God is a God of order, not chaos. He is a God of purpose, not chance. And regardless of how you take these days, the point is actually primarily theological. We cannot approach this text and thrust upon it questions that it is not intending to answer. When Moses wrote this, listen, they were not concerned and did not need to know how old the earth was. You want to know what they needed to know? They needed to know who their God was and how they were supposed to relate to him. This is the God who brings order to chaos. And that order teaches us about the God we worship. He is the God who made the world and everything in it, and he is the God who made it to function a particular way. So practically speaking, what does this mean for us? As we look at this, how can we apply it to our lives? Well, I I think, listen, we sang this in the first song, sometimes our lives feel like chaos. Sometimes the world is just immersed in chaos. Sometimes everything feels formless, confusing. But none of that is outside the bounds of God's sovereignty, of God's ability and authority to rule and reign and to reorder. God is over it. He is over all. He can take a watery mass that is formless, and he can give shape to it in order to make it profitable for humanity. And he can do it by the power of his word. Listen, listen, there is nothing in your life that he cannot form and shape into something profitable for you. There's no mistake you've made. There's no sin too great. There's no problem too big. There's nothing in your life that is so chaotic that God can't step into that mess, that God can't, in his grace and in his power, take and reshape for your good and for his glory. Do you believe that, church? There is nothing... God is over all. And maybe your life seems pointless and hopeless. Listen, God is over all. Maybe everything in your life feels broken, and maybe, maybe even because of you. God is overall. He brings order to chaos. That's who he is. Secondly, he is overall because he brings life to the lifeless. So having put in place the framework over the first three days of the week, God goes back to the beginning to add the contents into that framework. Again, it's it's like an architect building out his house or tabernacle. That's why later the tabernacle is going to be compared to the creation account. The sanctuary mirrors the created world. He puts lights in the sky. By the way, that word, a light, that he uses here, it's, it's the word that's used, same word for lamps that are placed in the sanctuary in the tabernacle. So again, why this temple imagery? Why this emphasis on, on filling the earth? Well, I want you to notice that everything points to the world being habitable. It is set up with functions and provisions that will sustain life. It's going to be a place that life is able to, to thrive and flourish. And don't miss this. This is, this is really important, okay? Okay. Life was intended to flourish in God's cosmic temple. In other words, life was intended to flourish in the presence of God. While life can be lived outside, away from the presence of God, true meaning, purpose, joy, and blessing can only be found in the very presence of God. He is the author of life. He is the source of all life. He is the sustainer of life. And, and these days, they begin to articulate that. God brings forth plants and vegetation, fruit, trees, bearing fruit. They, they, they yield seeds. And you see what God is doing. He's, he's beginning to, to create a thriving, healthy metropolis that is a reproducing, He blesses the animals as he places them on the earth, and and the the waters in the sky, they teem with life, and he blesses them saying, be fruitful and multiply. You see that? The the blessing, the tov, the goodness of God is tied to the life-giving power of God. He places the stars in the sky, and the the light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And just keep in mind, like, why, why is he using this language? Part of what you have to remember is that th- this is a bit of a polemic against the gods of the nations. Remember, the gods of the nations, they worshipped creation. They looked at aspects or elements of creation and, and they turned them into their gods. So he doesn't even, this is fascinating, they get the greater light and the lesser light. Why did he do that? Well, here's why, because in Egypt, guess what they did? They had the sun god. They named the sun god, Ra, after the sun, and they had a god of the moon, and so it's as if he's kind of dismissing them outright, and he's saying, listen, we don't even need names for these things, because it's not even worth mentioning. The only name you have to know is Yahweh, God, creator of all things. And the fish, the sea, and why does he talk about the sea? And they, well, they made gods of, of the animals in the sea. And in the creation myths of the world, oftentimes there were beasts in the sea that were thought to be outside the, the realms of the power of the gods. They're too great, too mighty, too magnificent, and the sea was seen as a place of fear and death. It was a scary thing. And see, here he's like, listen, you know those gods, uh, Leviathan and Rahab? Those were uh, the gods. They're mentioned actually in the Bible, sort the sea monsters mentioned in the Bible. Yeah, they're, they're just little sea creatures. God just kind of boop, plop, boom. And one of the, the amazing things we see as God populates the earth and he fills it with life, it's a reminder, listen, that God doesn't, he's not just like this, this cosmic Clockmaker that he just kind of creates it, he winds it up, and then he steps back and he detaches himself from it. That's not our God. Our God is sovereign over it, He is. but, but he, listen, he is both transcendent and imminent. He is so far above it in greatness and power and majesty and in might, and, and yet he is so intimately involved in his creation. Everything in creation still relies on him to keep it alive at every given moment. Listen, every, just take a breath for a second. Check your pulse. You're being sustained this very moment by the power of God. Every part of your life, the breath you take, the food you eat, every moment is a gift from God. And this reminds us, listen, that true life, God is telling us in this creation account, account, true life is found only in the presence of God, only when we're operating in accordance with his divine design. One of the things you have to see is that God puts boundaries and he separates things. these, these, These words are so important. God determines the boundaries of the seas and the dry land, the earth and the sky. Everything is contained by, He sets its limits. And and listen, when we try to transgress the limits and boundaries of God, it does not lead to life. Come on, church, tell me where it leads. It leads to death. Death. And the word separate is such an important word here. Make a distinction. You want to know where else uh, Moses uses this word most frequently in the the first five books of the Old Testament? In the book of Leviticus. Where... Where the Israelites, so they're reading this. Think about this. They're reading this. They're already reading Leviticus. And as they're looking, like, why do we have to separate uh, clean and unclean animals? Why do we have to make all these little distinctions? Why can't anything bleed together? And, you know, why are we being prevented from doing this? Well, because, listen, one, it's a a polemic against the nations and what they worship and what they do. But here's the other thing. God is, is making sure his people understand that he's the one who determines what is right and what is good. He's telling them that they are to be able to discern and make distinctions and separations. This is the way God has designed it from the very beginning. And ultimately, he's telling them that you are not like the nations of the world. Your God is unique and distinct, and so you must be unique and distinct. Being able to discern what is good and what is not is critical for living the true and good life. I want you to notice that all this is, is dictated and driven by God's word, and I want you to see this too. There is some fascinating patterns and rhythms. You know, we've seen the phrase morning and evening, but you notice that he, he says that the sun and, and moon, so to speak, and stars are placed in the sky for times and seasons and years. You see what well, God is, again, he's setting up this ecosystem, that's going to be able to allow life to thrive, but it's, it's actually deeper than that. You say, well, what's your point? Like, what, are you, what are you getting at? Here, here's my point. What the creation account is doing is giving God's people the basis for their law and their lives. It's showing them that from the beginning, God created everything with order and purpose and that all of life was to be lived in the rhythms established by him. And what we see is that all of life is actually designed to point us back to God. All of life is created and designed in order to help us worship God, that the Jews tied their calendar to the foundations of creation itself. Work six days, rest one day. We're going to get there in a couple weeks. But you see, this was a perpetual reminder that their God was the God of creation and he was the God of redemption. He was the God who demanded worship and obedience every day of their lives. You know, they had morning prayers and evening prayers. Their whole calendar was shaped around festivals, times of the year, and, and, you know, every seven years, jubilee, you know, jubilee, you got all these, like, you just have to think this. The Jewish calendar was screaming to the people of God your life exists to worship God and right from the very beginning God was saying all of creation the normal rhythms of life it's all built to help you see your relationship to God God is overall including our time and what we do with our time matters listen we are lifeless here's church the practical application for you and me we are lifeless when we live outside God's design boundaries It crushes our soul. It steals our joy. It breeds disordered desires and sin. When we transgress those boundaries and step outside the God-given order, we experience a sort of death, and we're going to see that especially in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. When we fail to live our lives as an act of worship, we're not experiencing the blessing of true life in God's kingdom in his temple. And perhaps you feel spiritually lifeless today. And maybe the reason is because you have stepped outside of God's designed boundaries for your life. True life is not found in this world. It's not found in stepping into sin. True life is not found in our world's idols of accomplishment and accumulation. It's found in God's presence. Which can be experienced only under God's good word and good rule. Finally, I wanna show you this, that our God is overall because He brings light to the darkness. I-, I wanna be clear, I wanna gonna rope back around here to verse three and four. And I wanna be clear here that, that in verses three and four it's speaking of, of material light and darkness, which are a part of the rhythm of daily life for the human world and the animal world. And so, one of the things you need to see is that light, by the way, is what is declared to be good. But darkness is not simply bad. It it makes sleep natural. It's actually, in one sense, good. It reminds us human beings that we're not God, that we're mere creatures who need rest. But it reminds us that our God is not like us. He neither sleeps nor slumbers. It reminds us that we are dependent upon Him and that He is dependent upon nothing. But in the beginning, the darkness represented the ability for life, the inability, excuse me, for life to exist. Remember that that watery mass was formless and void. God is going to form it and fill it. But it was darkness that covered the entirety of the earth. Nothing could thrive, nothing could exist, nothing could live in that environment. And so the next or perhaps greatest creative act of God is that he speaks, let there be light. And in an instant, light just bursts through the darkness. But there's no sun yet. So, where where is this light coming from exactly? Light is the opposite of darkness, metaphorically as well as literally. And Genesis, interestingly, does not say that God created light. I don't know if you picked up on that. Perhaps rather the best way to think of this is that he willed it to emanate from himself. His generating light means that he is setting a limit to the darkness. Darkness is no longer boundless but is given its place in the rhythm of time. And the single act is a reminder that the sun is not the ultimate source of light, The scriptures in Psalm 104 verse 2 say God wraps himself in light as if it is his clothing. He is light. And in him, 1 John says, there is no darkness at all. In God's light, Psalm 36 verse 9 says, we see light. And it's amazing because when you think of, it, again, this cosmic temple, at the beginning God's own light burst forth from him in blazing glory. But you know what the, the crazy thing is? When we get to the very end of the Bible, when God's cosmic temple is fully and finally realized, here's what the book of Revelation says, verse 21, or chapter 21, verse 23, and the city, speaking of the new heavens and the new earth, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the light lamb. Revelation 22, verse 5, and night will be no more. They will no, need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And the Bible will draw out this theme of light and darkness in a moral sense. It will describe the sin of humanity as darkness. All of us, after the fall, are are living. We're plunged into the darkness of sin. We're living, as Paul says, in the domain of darkness where Satan rules. He's the prince of the power of the air. Paul says in Ephesians 5 that at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. In chapter 6, he refers to this present darkness. But I think the the best demonstration of this is by the Apostle John in the Gospel of John. And we saw this last week, that the gospel of John is like a new creation account. You know, John picks up the, in, the beginning language at the very beginning of his book in order to tell us, listen, this is a new creation that's beginning in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to put these verses rapid fire on the screen, so just follow along, but watch how this just unfolds across the pages of John's gospel. John 1 verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John 3.19, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. John 8, 12, again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12, 35, so Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in in darkness. And I love most of all, I think, um, Paul in Colossians, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, he pulls us all the way back to the creation account, and he presses spiritual truth into our hearts. He says this, he says, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. You see, creation points us to salvation. And it points us to redemption, which is simply an act of new creation. It is the first act of new creation. And it happens only by the power of God, by the word of God, that can speak and open the eyes of the blind, that can speak light into the midst of darkness. All of us, apart from Christ, are spiritually formless and void. We're spiritually speaking uninhabitable. And then God says, let there be light. He speaks the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ directly into our hearts and our eyes are open to behold the wonderful blazing beauty and glory of the one and only savior of humanity. We see that the darkness of this world cannot overcome the light of life in Jesus Christ. We see that the light of the world stepped down into darkness that he was willing to take on human flesh that he was willing to die the darkest of deaths to hang on a cross in our place and to pay not just for sin generally for the world but for sin specifically for you every one of your sins he knows about past present and future I don't care how deep how grievous how bad it is he nailed it to the piece of wood a certificate of debt took it all and he was buried in darkness for three days but he didn't stay in the tomb he rose victoriously over sin and death three days later just think about this think about that that stone rolling away and the blazing glory of Jesus Christ the victory of Christ just bursting forth in glorious day this is what creation is pointing us to Not just that God can create the universe and and make something new out of nothing, but that God can take you and He can make something brand new. He can take what is chaotic, what is lifeless, what is darkened by sin, listen, and He, by the power of His Word, can bring life. He can bring light. He can bring healing. He can bring hope. He can reorder what has been so grievously disordered by sin. When you gaze upon the light of his glorious grace, listen, repenting of your sin and putting your faith in him, he takes you from darkness to light, from lifelessness to true and eternal life, from a life of chaos to a life ordered by him with meaning and purpose to know, to love, and to worship him. Our God and our King has done that for us. Do you know Him today? If not, I would beg you, I would plead with you to turn from the darkness of your sin and to look upon the glory, the blazing light of Jesus Christ, to embrace Him as Lord and Master, to surrender your life to Him, to become a new creation today, And if you do know him today, I pray that you are so refreshed by his grace, that you're so reminded, listen, that yes, yes, we stumble, we fall, we struggle, we sin. But God is in the habit of taking what is broken and making something beautiful. Amen?